You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 411 of the Colombia Calling podcast. I think you'll all agree that episode 410 with Emily Hart taking the reins and interviewing Frank Wynne, the recognized, renowned literary translator, was quite a special episode. And to have him uh, reading extracts from Andres Caicedo's book was really something special. There was a, a, a genuine literary voice there. And, uh, well, we hope that Emily will be uh, submitting further interviews as months go on. And of course, you have all written in to say how much you enjoyed the first episode of the year, which was like questions and answers between her, uh, herself and myself. And so I think towards the elections, we should do another one. Uh, well, the election's coming up quite soon, but I think we should do another one to try and do another explainer about what's going on. This week's episode is a special, like every episode. We've got journalist and author Joan Grillo. Uh, Joan is from the UK, but he's based in Mexico. And you might know him from books such as El Narco and uh, Blood Gun Money. So this week we'll be talking about the war on drugs because we take a link between Mexico and Colombia. And of course, the uh, investigation he did for his most recent book, Blood Gun Money. Uh, and the, how, how, well, how the arms trade affects this part of the world, how it ends up in the hands of the cartels, and so on. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. Next week, we're taking a look at, well, we're kind of winding back the clock to take a look at uh, the Paro Nacional from last year, but then, of course, bringing it up to date and saying, what is happening now with regards to the court cases and the judicial system about what happened and the police brutality that occurred during the Paro Nacional. And Juan Papier uh, is with us. He's from Human Rights Watch, and he's the chief investigator of the Americas. And he'll be talking to us about where we stand now, what is going on in Colombia with regards to this. So two excellent episodes, this one now, 411 and 412, ready for you. Of course, now I hand over to Emily Hart with the uh, news, and then we will be back with Joan Grillo talking about his books, The War on Drugs, and, well, Mexico, Colombia, and so on. Thank you again for listening. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of February 7th, 2022. In recent weeks, forest fires in Colombia have intensified, particularly in the Amazon and Orinoco regions. 50% of the country is currently on some kind of fire alert. The burning is occurring in Colombia's so-called Arc of Deforestation in Caquetá, Meta and Guaviare provinces, where it creeps into national parks and parts of the Amazon rainforest. Defence Minister Diego Molano said that specifically in the Amazon, FARC dissident groups are responsible for the fires. 
On Friday, Bogotá's environmental secretary warned that smoke could even affect air quality in the capital. And it was revealed this week that the government of President Joe Biden is deporting Venezuelan migrants to Colombia. Vice President and Foreign Minister Marta Lucia Ramírez denied that there was an agreement with the US government to receive Venezuelan migrants. But she admitted that Venezuelans with residency or protected immigration status in Colombia were sent back here by the US, who is unable to deport people directly to Venezuela. The legal grounds for this are putatively related to pandemic management. Biden has not lifted a Trump-era order that permits the US to rapidly deport migrants caught crossing the southern border during a pandemic. The US Department of Homeland Security has said it plans to continue these returns, citing that health order on a regular basis. Around 25,000 Venezuelans were arrested at the US-Mexican border in December, according to US government statistics, a sharp increase from just 192 arrests during the same month a year earlier. A record 1.7 million migrants were arrested at the US-Mexican border last year. The discussion on decriminalisation of abortion has been further delayed at the Constitutional Court as anti-abortion groups lodged 50 challenges to the participation of Judge Juan Carlos Enao. The objections were lodged because, in a statement to the media, Enao had said that he was in favour of decriminalisation. Enao had arrived after Judge Alejandro Linares was ruled unable to participate, also having made statements in the media on the issue, which suggested that he too was in favour of decriminalisation. Linares was also recused by anti-abortion supporters. After Enao's status is resolved, the court will decide whether or not an abortion should be decriminalised within the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, considered a middle ground by the judges proposing the amendment. Last year, during the Paro Nacional protests, Bogotá police used public transport terminals as illegal detention centres, according to two city council members, confirmed by authorities and testimonies including video evidence. Numerous witnesses speak of arbitrary detentions, torture and other human rights violations. It has now been confirmed that on the 29th of April last year, police detained at least nine people, including a minor, at the Portal Americas station. Those people had testified that they were beaten with various objects and that police tried to suffocate them with tear gas in an enclosed area. There is, in addition, evidence that both the mayor's office of Bogotá and the police command were aware of these illegal detentions. And the Ombudsman's Office has published its report on the humanitarian crisis in Arauca, due to the ongoing confrontation between the ELN and dissidents of the FARC. The report cites 66 people killed and over 1,200 displaced people, including 51 former combatants in the process of reincorporation. In addition, at least 12 journalists have been threatened and pressured, both by ELN and FARC dissidents, to publish information about their actions. Defence Minister Diego Molano has announced that at least 7,100 members of the security forces have been deployed to this region of the country. And the fourth peak of coronavirus is seemingly on its way out. New daily cases are now at around 10,000, down from 30,000 in mid-January 
but still well above the 2,000 new daily cases being reported between August and December of last year. Although last week intensive care occupation in Antioquia was over 90% and nearly half of patients admitted to ICU beds in recent days have been unvaccinated. Meanwhile, 80% of Colombians have now had at least one dose of vaccine, around 65% are fully vaccinated and 12% have also had a booster injection. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 411 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McColl. My very special guest needs no introduction today. Joan Grillo. I want to say Grillo because we're in Latin America, but Joan Grillo, uh, you know, a journalist par excellence based in Mexico, author of Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America, and of course, El Narco Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. Welcome, and thank you for agreeing to come on the Columbia Calling podcast. Hey, Richard, good to be here. It's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. I pestered you enough, and now you're here. Uh, and so thank you for that. And of course, recording this in, in your spare time, busy guy. Uh, let's just let's just start with, with the basics. You ended up, oh, you came to Latin America. You've been here since 2001. Uh, it's a tricky time now, 2022, only recently in, in your home city up there in Mexico now, it's, uh, there have been protests because of the nature of how, you know, deaths in journalism. I think in 20 years, it's more than 160 journalists there in, in Mexico. You're taking on these stories. Tell us how it feels to be a journalist up there right now. Yeah. So, so thanks. Um, and yeah, I arrived in Mexico Actually, the end of 2000, started working as a journalist in 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, began for an English language newspaper called The News, run ah. by a Mexican paper, sister paper called Noviades. And I worked there for a couple of years and, and carried on uh, and got into freelancing and then worked for news agencies and newspapers. And, uh, and so it's been a long ride. Um, it, it's very depressing um, and tragic with the murder of. Mexican journalists, the vast majority. There have been a few foreign journalists killed here as well. Um, one American journalist, Bradley Ronan Will, was killed in 2006. Um, an American, not American journalist, was killed um, around 97, a bit before I arrived, 97, 98 here. Um, and a couple of other, like there's a Honduran journalist killed. But the vast majority have been have been Mexican citizens and, and you know from here. And um, it's, it's very depressing and tragic. Uh, I've covered stories of journalist murders going back to in my early years here, 2004, 2005, did these stories and, 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 and covered then the, the issues of, of newspapers being intimidated, being threatened, journalists being murdered. And it just carried on and got, it's got worse and worse. And then we had big protests. There was a big wave of journalist murders in from about 2011, 2012, you start seeing a big, you know, big murders, these high-profile murders of Regina Martinez, who's a, a reporter for a, for a news magazine called Proceso here in Mexico, biggest news magazine in the country. 
Uh, and she was murdered in the whole series. And then, you know, you got to 2017 when Halle Valdez, a very renowned, very famous journalist from Sinaloa, who was also a friend of mine, um, was murdered in, in his home state of Sinaloa. And, you know, and, and waves of protests and protests. And then we get to 2022 and, and, and three journalists killed in, you know, almost a week, uh, three journalists were murdered. So very, very depressing. Um, in this time, you know, protests, letters, uh, statements made, demands, and then you get like uh, um, the, the mechanism to protect journalists gets created. Doesn't help. In fact, journalists who are murdered were inside this mechanism to protect journalists, which is kind of some system where people who feel threatened should go into. Um, there was um, creation of a special prosecutor to prosecute crimes against journalists. Again, hasn't stopped this. Um, so, so very, very, very sad. Um, and you know, like, um, just continues, and continues, and on the, uh, you know, a trying to find a, a positive note of this really depressing thing is the fact that you you know that i've still seen in the 20 years i've been in mexico um mexican colleagues still carrying on doing great work a great generation of journalists uh since i've been here um you know at all kinds of different levels from people who are writing you know great books you know, directly accusing the government, the real big names, to the people with the you know the massive radio shows and TV shows who are also doing good, cutting edge stuff. People like Carmen Aristegui, to loads of great journalists in all over the country, and you know, still when I go to any places that can be uh, Apatzingan, Michoacan, um, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, um, Tijuana, in finding the colleagues there working in the field, digging up the daily news stories, and they're still doing it despite the, the wave of murders. So it, I mean, that's the, the similarity, of course, with Colombia. Obviously, the threat level is so much higher for, for local journalists. I mean, you know, Colombian journalists, Mexican journalists. Do you, do you find yourself somewhat sheltered, being, being obviously not from Mexico? Well, first, the, the, the wave of murders... It's not only been about just Mexican journalists, but also specifically has mainly been Mexican journalists living in the towns and cities, mm. particularly where the cartels are strongest. So it's not hasn't been, in fact, the real big names in Mexico City mm. um, who have been being killed. Um, it's generally been people, you know, and often people working for more local publications um, who, who have been hit. So that's one thing is that like Mexico is a very dynamic country. It's a very varied country. And so, and, and, I, and I tell this to people and some of the Americans don't believe me, but I tell them that look, Mexico City has actually got a lower murder rate than about 40 American cities right now. But you've got places like Tijuana, which have got some of the worst murder rates in the world. So it's very varied in that sense. Um, when now, this issue of, of murdering journalists is complicated, but cartels, drug cartels, are a huge part of this. Often working with local authorities, police who are corrupt, and it's kind of a, um, a, a narco um, complex of corrupt police and law enforcement and drug traffickers. But they're, they're a huge factor. Now, when I go to these places 
to work, which are very intense and very crazy, some of these places. I mean, you know, just got back from Michoacan, um, the hot land of Michoacan, um, the Michoacan-Jalisco border, which is just, you know, these are crazy. These are areas of this kind of weird hybrid armed conflict. I mean, these are really out there when you see that on the field, these places. But you can go to these places and, and go and live that craziness for a while and then go home. Whereas people who live in those areas, they can't get away from that. So some of these small, a small town like a Patsingan, Michoacan, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, you go, there's a very intense cartel. You go there, you might be at a murder scene where there's cartel guys present. You might interview a cartel um, hitman or a cartel affiliate. And then you could be going to the cinema, going to the shops, and you see these same people around. So you're much more intense, very close, and they know where you live. Mm. So it's much more intense there. Um, now, I wouldn't, from the point of view of saying um, I'm a foreign journalist, I wouldn't want to tempt fate by saying I'm, <laughs> I'm in some way protected. I've got like an invisibility shield. Because you see very intense situations. And, you know, you see in some cases, it's actually very few journalists who have died from, from shootouts but there have been cases with journalists who have been covering these big shootouts and just been hit by a stray bullet, doesn't recognise who you are. But also, you know, the, some of these cartel murderers, I mean, these can be sometimes 17-year-old kids with AK-47s um, who are not really that accountable. And there have been various cases of myself and various foreign journalists in the last few years who have been held up by armed groups and had equipment taken away and 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 you know so they've been held for some time at gunpoint and had equipment taken away and, and been and had threats made so so it's not you know it still has been a, a difficult and rough place to report on you were you were held up and had your um equipment taken away recently um i so so there's been some co various colleagues i know at least Three cases of foreign journalists mm -hmm. who have had have been held up and had their equipment taken away in the last three years. One in Sinaloa, one in Tijuana, one in Guerrero. I've never had that. <laughs> uh, I have had a you know one time somebody threatening to you know at uh, one time they accused me of being a DEA agent and <laughs> and threatened to uh, they shoot me in the head if they saw me again. But they, uh, in that case, they didn't, they, they didn't they take my equipment away or, uh, or, or or hold me down like in other cases where the uh, colleagues were like held down at gunpoint for for like you know an hour or so. You know, yeah, this is this um, this is trauma inducing stuff. How do you how do you wind down after like so, let's say an intense reporting job in Reynosa, which has been described to me by someone in the sort of executive security industry as one of the greatest shitholes on earth. How do you wind down from some, something like that? I mean, because you are, you're up in it uh, and, and seeing such things, because this brings me a little bit to, to your latest book, you know, blood gun money. And you are visibly, well, not visibly, I mean, we read it and how affected you are. And there's a, a young girl who's paralyzed from the waist down and just lies on her bed all day. And, you know, this just through reading through the lines, there's a trauma there, you know, PTSD. Yeah. So I've been doing this now for 20 years and it's, you know, I think I think I, I you get used to it with time. Um, it is hard, and 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 you know, before I you know, like maybe you know, ten years ago, I remember doing you know, running around covering these really intense things, and then going you know, going home and finding it could be you know, a bit hard to just kind of slow to change 
level and like be in the supermarket with a trolley and you're suddenly like before you're in a really really intense situation you kind of go kind of having that you know turning it off or or, or going you know I remember covering the the prison fire in Honduras is 2012 there was 360 deaths you saw you know the smell of charred bodies in the cells of of, of this prison and you now that's the biggest prison tragedy ever in the world you know 360 dead um, you know, running around covering that and, and then kind of hitting a bar and, you know, drinking half a bottle of rum, um, trying to talk, you know, calm the nerves. But I think over time I got more used to to, to this to try and not turn it on, turn it off, um, try and pace myself a bit covering these things. Uh, and I think it, it, it is um, emotionally, it is weird. And this is, this kind of goes for a lot of journalists, I think, doing this kind of stuff. Um you, you go there, you you with people, you see like a lot of intense suffering. Um, you know, you see people, yeah, like the case uh, of, of a young girl who was paralyzed from the waist down. In fact, she died um, uh, shortly before the book was published. Uh, she she died um, later on and connected to her injuries. Real tragic case. Um, so you kind of see these things, see these cases of you know people really suffering or, or be you know spend time with with gangsters with serial murderers be around it and then kind of switch off and, and go back and you kind of get used to that um kind of switching on and off and that kind of kind of and, and used to trying to assess the levels i mean recently i was spending time in a couple of meetings with a, the federal policeman who was well, he'd actually been kicked out of the federal police and he had various beefs and I was talking to him and then he was murdered. And so he's only got, you know, got this kind of like, oh, is that a you know, big alarm? How do you assess these kind of panics of, of things? And you had a lot of these, you kind of get used to them. Um, um, and, and partly, I mean, one of the, I mean, it is, it is a freaky place covering the, the kind of violence in Mexico. So I get, I've worked well with a lot of foreign TV crews who come in and, and aren't used to it. And, you know, and people just, you know, like, it, it can create and induce a lot of fear. Um, how can I go and, and cover that? Or, you know, and you kind of get used to turning off and just trying to assess the threats and not be too freaked out by these situations mm. as well. Mm. I, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very lightweight alongside this. So it's down here in Colombia seems uh, positively demure alongside what you're doing. I, I, I'm, I'm curious because I mean, you write uh, your your principal one of your one of your big things. Obviously, is the war on drugs. Obviously, this is this is uh, funding what's going on in Mexico for a large part, and of course, what we are here in Colombia. And you wrote an editorial or an opinion piece in um, the New York Times, a war on drugs, uh, and of course, you know, it must end now. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about this, and of course, it's 1971. It's Nixon, and that war as they call it, hasn't evolved. It's all about, you know, sort of eradication and military uh, aid and so on. And this has been a huge, hugely damaging to Colombia, really. I mean, we've got a militarized society all through this. I, do you have sort of thoughts on this, uh, you know, Colombia, Mexico related? Uh, what, what, I mean, how we're in a, we're at a real crossroads here at Colombia right now with the elections coming up uh, later in the year. And of course, well, fortunately, the aerial fumigation of glyphosate was uh, ruled uh, for now. It's, it's been uh, overruled, uh, you know, the recommencement of this. 
this because they didn't uh, talk to the communities who'd be affected. But I mean, this is known to be damaging as well. Uh, it's just, I just, uh, I mean, you know, obviously we produce so much of what goes up to Mexico and so much which funds it. I, I just, I, I find ourselves in this in this tricky situation. What I mean. I, Mexico not only is a, a, a let's say a transshipment country, but they also produce other. That uh, I think there's opium, and I think there's amphetamines and meth and everything else. So, I mean, it, it's a complex situation. So, with with the war on drugs, I do think there's been a, a development. Mm. I think you have to so the war on drugs been declared by Richard Nixon in 1971, and I would say that kind of phase of the war on drugs lasts until about the turn of the millennium mm -hmm. um, where America really is kind of into this war on drugs. And, you know, you see different different presidents with it. And, and so you see, you know, Ronald Reagan and really embraces it. And, and then they have all the um, the big work in, in Florida uh, and bringing in the Navy and, and the uh, Miami Task Force or the South Florida Task Force and all this kind of stuff which kind of makes it more difficult to take cocaine directly from Colombia right over the sea directly into the United States. And then you get pushed more to Mexico. And then you have, um, you know, still with Bill Clinton, you have a certain, you know, still, you know, a certain enthusiasm. Uh, and then the taking down of Pablo Escobar in 1993. I would say by the turn of the millennium and definitely after 2001, if you want to have a marker, September 11th, mm. Um, America losing interest in the war on drugs and not really having the same belief in it as it did then. So I I would I argue that after that, now we go into a zombie war on drugs. So whereas the original war on drugs, and you see, you see that the, the, if you look at the, the speeches of Richard Nixon, uh, we can abolish drugs from American life. We can transform in a very absolutist promise. There would be no drugs so that uh, American parents would not worry about their kids taking heroin. Uh, and then still with Ronald Reagan, just say no, which is back in the UK, we had a weird version on the Grange Hill. Um, <laughs> yeah. also, also just say no. Old enough to remember Grange Hill. I remember. I remember. And, 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 and Zamo, Zamo uh, <laughs> you know, taking... Uh, Zamo smokes the dragon and gets a smack on the mouth. I think it was the uh, yeah. um, so so the um, we have these things there in the UK, and then um, and then you know still with with, with Clinton, and, and if you go back to some of these times in the nineties, you, you know eighties nineties, there'd be surveys be like, what's the number one issue in the United States? People would say drugs. Hmm. I mean that was this was you know nowadays you know it, I mean well actually drugs uh, drug addiction is a huge issue now, but it's different in that you know I don't see from from you know from definitely from post 9-11 onwards there's not this same enthusiasm there's not there wasn't such the, the 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 real driving attempt for a while kind of drugs went off the agenda now since 2000 2020 we've seen this massive increase in deaths and now we've got a horrific issue with drug addiction in the united states and drug deaths mm. but it's not even then still really an enthusiasm for the kind of real hog, I mean, maybe they'll regain it again, but a kind of hardcore um, approach from you know at high levels of promising it. But we get the, these prohibitionist policies carrying on and these militarized policies carrying on, carrying on. Now, the way that Colombia and Mexico developed and other countries in Latin America, 
The problem is then we have, it's connected to drugs in a big way and particularly to drug money. Mm. So, you know, all this drug money pouring in now, the numbers, we don't know the real numbers, but we've got vague estimates. Um, I mean, you look on the on the US side, the you know, what there's a White House survey, what Americans spend on illegal drugs, estimates about $150 billion a year. Mm. It's hard to know exactly how much that really goes to Mexico. But over, we're talking about tens of billions a year over decades, you know, reaching trillion dollar kind of levels. So this money gets pumped in, pumped in, pumped in, uh, and funding murderers, corrupting police, um, really tilting the system. So the problem is then, uh, you have in Mexico right now, particularly, this situation with, with you know, generally very, very violent armed groups, um, as well as corrupt and violent security forces. So it's kind of the worst of both worlds, but it's not actually an easy, as easy as pressing a button and, pre- and pressing the stop button on this. It's become a kind of weird thing that you can't win and you can't pull out of so quite as easily. As an example of that, you get places where, um, you know, like some, there's a, there's a military there and there's also a very violent cartel there and then the military pull out and then the cartel are doing heavy extortion or kidnapping, and then a bunch of residents get you know get up, and then the military go back in again. You know, suddenly there's a, then the, so it's kind of this back and forth, um, which we're stuck in right now. And you know, we can say um, and give these solutions, like you know, in 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 my three books, I always write about these solutions of like being you know one area drug policy reform, which I do believe in one area prevention and transforming communities where the criminals are coming from and one area building a justice system that actually works. We can say these things, but saying them is very different is a long way from them really being put into practice. Um, and, and politicians are, are not great in Mexico. Uh, they're pretty terrible in many of them in Mexico, but those are dealing with the very hard reality of Mexican politics. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I, I, you know, we, we wrestle with ideas here and, and of course there's all this, sort of let's say celebrating when a, a capo is taken down and it's a big and it's front page news you know the chapel or escobar 93 and only recently president duque tried to claim that you know the capture in inverted commas of otoniel uh you know the leader of the clan del golfo would then uh, you know it would uh it would lead to a a reduction in the killings of social leaders and community leaders, which of course it hasn't. And of course there's been no drop in, in the production of cocaine and things like, so, I mean, how do you feel when you see this next thing? It's like, well, we're going for the, for the head again, but it, it doesn't really solve anything. I mean, the, the, really the Medellin cartel never went away. It just sort of evolved into different cartels, less flamboyant, for example, when Escobar went, maybe it wasn't Escobar anymore. He did kind of do himself a major disservice by by running as a politician, you know, bringing himself to, into, a, a, you know, very much public knowledge and so on and so forth. Now we're, you know, we, we see different types of uh, of cartel leaders, but how how are things being addressed there in Mexico? What is, I mean, is there an actual coherent plan? No, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. the short answer. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, I, I, I think with the with the kingpin strategy uh, and the idea of taking down these big kingpins clearly failed, uh, and often it 
creates more violence because you know in Mexico you have mm. you know you take down and his one very powerful cartel was won by uh, a guy called Arturo Beltran Leva. Mm. He was taken down and suddenly you get this big breakup of these groups under him and then you get the kind of the fragment of the fragment of the fragment and these kind of young hitmen suddenly running these really violent groups and carrying out a bunch of a bunch of horrific murders and, and crimes. The problem is, and it gets to kind of double bind here, is that so, so this current president has backed away from the kingpin mm-hmm. strategy to an extent. I mean, he said, he said we're not going after kingpins. The problem is he hasn't really got an alternative plan as well. So it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If you don't go after them, they haven't really got an alternative plan as well. He's, the violence just carries on. So he takes heat for still very high levels of homicide. One of the problems is is it's bad going after the kingpins doesn't work, but it is also bad to allow impunity. Mm-hmm. So if you have got the head of a cartel that's committed a very large amount of murders. I mean, even forgetting about the drugs issue itself, but if someone's committed a bunch of murders and kidnappings and extortion and horrific acts, should you just like not go after that person, not arrest them? You know, that's a bad thing as well. So it's kind of a double bad thing. So either way, though, whether you go after them or not, and I think, you know, sometimes you shouldn't allow, um, you know, real criminals to flagrantly, you know, like, you know, move around, but there's got to be a bigger plan. Um, so... You know, again, you know, long-term plan um, drug policy reform. I think they have to talk about this or reach it at some point. Um, drug policy reform, which is a complicated question, really what it means. It's not as simple as, again, as a, a button you press and, and all drugs become legalised. But I think, you know, drug policy reform, and, and Mexico is such a, a a moral high ground to better start talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, you start seeing some politicians talk about this, but it's become, and there have been some movement, you know, with drug policy reform, but it started to kind of hit a bit of a um, some speed bump, really. Um, you know, but drug policy reform meaning um, looking at harm reduction, accepting the premise that the the war on drugs idea. So, 1971, Richard Nixon promised there would be no drugs. In nine, the late 90s, there was a United Nations drug conference, and actually had. The slogan there, a drug-free world, we can do it. <laughs> and they were still with this kind of ideas, these, you know, like fantasy ideas, like accepting that this is real realism. Mm. People are gonna take people are taking drugs. Um, unless you really want to have a very, very powerful authoritarian approach, you know, even more authoritarian than we've got now, you know, executing every drug dealer or something, you're not gonna stop this because the money incentives are too high. Um, so accepting that people take drugs and how do we reduce the damage now? I really think this is not easy because, okay, we, I think we should legalize marijuana. I think that debate has largely been won, although there's still some people pushing against it. But um, but then, uh, you know, how do we actually deal with heroin? How do we deal with crystal meth? How do we deal with cocaine? And these are still um, tougher questions. Um, but we need to have debate about this and at least, you know, try and reduce um, the consumption, the buying of these. I think that's a big, big part of it um, in terms of drug money, but also... How do you build law enforcement? How do you build police forces that actually function and that protect people? Um, that's a very tough one. And that's um, a conversation that, I mean, when in Mexico, they're constantly throwing these things of like creating new names and purifying this. It's like, yeah. but it, you know, it's, it's very basic. But that, again, it's like, how do you, you know, you, 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 need that i mean you know there needs to be protection of people you know it's not good to live in a society with thirty-six thousand murders in a year it's not good to live in a society with 
um, you know, ninety percent of murders going unsolved, and in some states, ninety-eight percent of murders going going unsolved. I mean, those those are not good conditions. It's terrifying figures. We've had, we've been going through. I think the the police force here in Colombia is going through one of its lowest ever ebbs. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, people's trust in in the in the institution. Of course, one of the big issues is that it's still it it, it falls under the umbrella or, and under the auspices of the uh, Ministry of Defense. So therefore, you know, and this is a, you know, obviously something that's carried over from the conflict, but they behave like an armed force and of course uh you'll you'll have known about the 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 protests last year and it's you know the official figures around 40 people killed during the protests but the figure the actual figure is probably much higher there are still people unaccounted for today and these questions i mean and and these uh the court cases and the investigations keep getting put back and put back and put back and then you know they do something like change to uniforms because they're going to look a bit more uh accessible and and then, but the big deal is they need to be taken out of the Ministry of Defence, you know, and put into the interior or something else. So it, but of course, they won't get the same money because it's it's almost like a national sovereignty thing because of the internal conflict. But it's a whole is is this mess that we've got. But in to keep it short, it's, if I were you know a policeman, I would I don't earn enough to save someone else's life. So that's the truth. I don't earn enough, and I know that I don't know that my family is going to be looked after. It should something happened to me and of course you know that that temptation of taking a cut somewhere else is i mean it's just a it's it's almost self-preservation in 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 a lot of circumstances i i don't condone it but this this there's this issue but i want to i want to jump on a bit because whenever we get something sort of more sinister stuff going on here in Colombia, then there's always a an implication or an indication, and, and some journalists write it. I don't know how much uh, knowledge they have or, or, or how accurate it is, but they do say that there's the interference and intervention of the Nuevo Jalisco cartel and the Sinaloa down here in Colombia. Now, I don't doubt that they're working hand in hand with the Clan del Golfo and, and other outfits, uh, the Pelusos, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the, the dissident FARC and probably the ELN guerrillas and so on. But how much do you know about the, this uh, connection between the two countries? Do you, I mean, have your investigations revealed some of this? For Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I mean, obviously, this is a relationship which is now between Mexican traffickers and mm-hmm. Colombian traffickers, drug producers, is a relationship that goes back to the 1970s, at least. And so, you know, you can see some of these, this first, this uh, first Colombian trafficker, the nickname El Mexicano, mm-hmm. uh, a guy from, you know, from, from, from Medellin, and he was up here in Mexico. There was, I think there was um, some documents I've seen with him being in Mexico you know, in 79, those kind of times. Mm-hmm. So pre-Pablo Escobar, there was already connections, even before the um, Reagan really cut down, uh, clamped down on the the Florida route. There was connections already between Colombians and Mexican gangsters. Um, And then you see this. Now I talked to one uh, pilot who was, I I cited in my book uh, quite briefly, but uh, longer interviews done with him where he was flying um, cocaine a lot from Colombia to Mexico mm. and talking about the deals that were being made going through the 80s, the 90s, the 20 hundreds. Um, and he you know, was talking about this, this this whole development. So you know, it used to be the Colombians paying the Mexicans uh, uh, an amount per kilo 
Um, so, you know, we'll give you the cocaine, pay your amount per kilo, you, you deliver it to us in the United States, and then we distribute it. And then gradually, then it, then it became for a while a 60-40, and then, you know, we'll, give, we'll pay you in cocaine, and then became 50-50, and then became the Mexicans gradually buying and paying a price per kilo. I attended some of the trial of El Chapo, and there's recordings there um, of, of, of El Chapo with, with Colombian figures, or was meant to be El Chapo. There's lawyers saying we can't really tell if it's his voice. Yeah, there's a kind of very uh, this very Sinaloan accent. It's like these kind of you know, rough recordings that you're hearing. Um, but like, um, uh, and, and so going there now, with with the current um, rise of the Jalisco New Generation cartel, which is um, a, a real power and a real presence and are now competing with the Sinaloa cartel as the most powerful force in Mexico, the biggest force in Mexico, um, you know, you're definitely seeing them with big links down to Colombia and, and, and very, very broad, um, as well as Sinaloa Cartel. So uh, continuing to do this. So so this is um, being another thing that, the, 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 I mean, you want to talk about this separately. One of the things inside in the book is the whole the whole weapons mm. transfer and weapons mm. deals. So in Mexico, that is a huge um, country for trafficking guns from the United States into Mexico including guns such as um, rifles that fire 50 caliber bullets, you know, Barrett 50s. Uh, and then these, it trades them down into Colombia. And, you know, this um, pilot said it very well um, that, um, you know, it's about business and there's no point in flying a plane down and, and, and paying for the uh, fuel and flying it down empty. If you're flying it back with cocaine, fly it down with, you know, with guns, tequila, um, riding saddles, whatever else they want from Mexico. You know, you stash it full of stuff. So you bring down, so you see these chains. Now, other chains have seen um, the interesting connections between cartels, and this was going back uh, um, a couple of years. There was a few car bombs going off here, and an explosive specialist in the U.S. Uh, agency looked at some of these car bomb circuits, and said these are the same circuits that they had down in Colombia. Now, those circuits were said to be the same circuits that they use in Northern Ireland. That these uh, IRA figures, and there's a famous case of these IRA yeah. figures going to and setting this technology you know, these, the, to, to the to the Colombians. So you see all these kind of you know Colombian and, and there's various Colombian gangsters up here in Mexico as well who actually become players here in the Jalisco New Generation cartel. There was a Colombian figure, but there's very as well that actually they kind of they, they, they there's a lot of uh, back and back and forth. Was well, yeah, I believe yeah, the Irish bird watchers, wasn't it? You know, they were. <laughs> that's, that's correct. That's, that's correct. It. They were bird watchers. They're yeah. back there uh, sipping tea in Ireland. I know that because uh, they 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 skipped yeah. bail, didn't they, and got back. And yes, yeah, that was a big deal. <laughs> and of course, that led to all our, our Irish people who wanted to come to Colombia had to get visas because that was immediately the reaction. The right. visa requirement has since been lifted. But then, um, I your book, yes, now that the the arms, as you say, this this flow. I was so amazed at the figures of you know guns being. I sold in in this kind of gray area between legal and illegal, and then of course being in the hands of I don't know in in sort of failed DAA operations that, that led to the deaths of DAA operatives, and and there's those guns then come on down. I mean cases and cases, thousands and thousands of guns, and as you say, once they're in Mexico and the planes coming down and so on, what and some of the other things was, was you know you you talked all about it. And you got I guess it wasn't it. Uh, 
was it Menem brokering guns for up here, Carlos Menem from Argentina that came through the Balkans and so on. I mean, this network is just, it it covers everything. And I don't think it's talked about enough because it goes hand in hand with, with, let's say, the inverted commas, war on drugs as well, because it's, you know, the the two go together. So your book reveals this uh, 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 to, to quite an extent. I mean, First of all, how have the sales been? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's been it's been good. Um, guns are not as an easy sell mm. as drugs. Yeah. Funny enough, yeah. Um, and my first book, El Narco, um, was was a very big seller. Mm. And partly, I think I I, I was um, the timing as the Mexican drug war was really starting to explode then. And I think there was in some ways, particularly for Americans, more of an appetite at that time to kind of know about foreign issues. Um, guns are, are a tougher seller in some ways. You know, it was when I first got into this and was like jumping into writing about one of America's um, you know, very you know, biggest sacred issues, guns. So I made a big effort to try and understand as well you know get all the facts right i mean you know really big effort because i've written i've written about this gun issue for for many years in mexico and i realized you know that the that the that the gun enthusiasts the gun in some cases the second amendment fanatics are or fundamentalists are very very keen you know look exactly what you do and like you know go through the red pen so get all the facts right you know go spend time around these massive uh gun shows and gun trade fairs talk as well with militia members and you know, the head of the AR-1500s of America, and try and get that. Now, um, this issue, so I, I came for this as well, like I'm not going against the Second Amendment, I'm against the selling of guns to drug cartels, the selling of guns to gangsters. This is an issue also you've got in the United States with right, you know, with, with a lot of firearm deaths and rising firearm deaths. Uh, and these same guns from the United States are, are reaching, you know, 100 and you know, more than 75, you know, con- different countries a year, 130 different countries, uh, around the world, including Colombia and, and, and basically the, right across the entire continent of the Americas, but also far away as Asia, Africa, these, these guns are reaching. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's a tough issue. It's kind of now one of the good signs. I mean, the book was cited in a lawsuit filed by the Mexican government against gun companies in the United States. Wow. So that was, and it's good to see that now. Um, this has been, I think, part of, you know, with this lawsuit happening uh, and with, with various bit about media coverage, you've now seen this issue of guns become much more firmly put in the agenda of US-Mexico. So that's a good thing. Like now you see all these like bilateral talks and there's, you know, various things coming out. There's just an announcement um, just from yesterday from the US ambassador here saying we've got other talks about how to, how to stop this. On the, the sadder side, I, I see in the United States now, one of the things that's, that's kind of mind-boggling for me is there's so many much low-hanging fruit they're not taking in trying to tackle this issue. And what I mean by that is when we look at some of the issues, like how do you build a police force that works in Mexico? That's a pretty daunting task. <laughs> but some of these issues is like how do you stop a cartel guy walking up and buying 85 firearms in the United States? That doesn't seem that hard to do. You know, it seems mad that somebody can walk in a shop and go, I'll have 85 guns, please. 
Um, you know, like, and, and there's no like alarm going off going, you know, who's this guy? How come he's paying in cash? How come this guy's 23 years old without, you know, without an official job? Um, so this basic stuff, this basic low-hanging fruit in these cases where you have people abusing a kind of loophole in the law and people selling a thousand guns um, through through gun shows where they're really buying and selling, they're not even clamping down on that. They're not stopping that. So they're not, they're not doing the very most basic thing of like trying to stop this flow and where you see estimates of more than 200,000 firearms a year go from the United States to Mexico. Now, what's frustrating, and I was even wondering when I wrote the book and it came out in February last year, you know, would I be too late? And would they have already, you know, Biden's going to win, Democrats are going to take the houses, they're bound to pass universal, you know, universal background checks. Maybe I'll be even late to the game of pointing this stuff out because they'll actually deal with it. Didn't I, you know, you know then, then, then you know, Biden came along and made a speech saying we're going to talk about guns. Nothing's come of it. It's, um, and I've been, you know, by some of these yeah. forums about this, about and asking, well, they're saying, well, they, they don't have the numbers. They still don't have the numbers now. There's still Democrats in certain districts with a lot of, you know, there's still this issue of guns is managing even now to kind of clog this up. Um, kind of, or, or even though that, you know, service fund 89% of Americans, the majority of gun owners and conservatives are in favor of universal background checks, mm. they're still not even able to move on this basic stuff. So that, that's kind of a bit, um, depressing and i feel the problem with one of the problems i think in american one of many problems in american politics right now but one of the problems in american politics and i think from the point of view of the left in america right now although supposedly we're seeing a time of of, of a kind of big resurgence of the left and much more of a consciousness and so forth if we're talking in general terms, the left is very bad about dealing with concrete issues and trying to find concrete solutions. So a lot of these, you know, left commentators, left politicians, they're not, you know, and I feel this issue on guns and also the fact that there's a lot of Americans dying of gun violence and there's a lot of these same issues could try and help reduce that. They're not actually, you know, really coming to try and confront these concrete issues head on. I, yeah, I mean, that's exactly as you say, the left and, and actually it feeds very well into uh, here the elections. The front runner at the moment is, of course, is the leftist Gustavo mm. Petro, who has a lot of ideas. But again, these concrete actions, um, when we saw him as mayor of Bogota all those years ago, the, the concrete actions were lacking. Good chatter, good conversation and then infighting. With the other leftists, that's what I always find uh, it ends up being this way. So, I mean, you know, you've got these three books, you write continually. What's the next project then, Johan? So right now I've been um, getting very much into making TV series. Nice. Um, over the last year, I mean, I've been messing around back and forth with TV for a long time. Uh, but right now I've got into a bit of the, the bandwagon of the, uh, the high-end, um, you know, streaming platform mm -hmm. TV stuff. Um, sadly, I mean, I've, I've spent, you know, 20 years working around newspapers and magazines. Sadly, they're not what they used to be in terms of, of budgets. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, there's, there's still some good stuff happening, but there's, you know, um, but, um, but, you know, there's, there's a bit of a boom in the TV industry and it's very interesting. So, so I've been working on two big projects, two big TV projects of different TV series, uh, connected to Mexico, Mexico and the US. 
Nice. Um, and and yeah, it's it's, it's been it's been yeah, I've been really kind of on these since the right since the book was published. It kind of happened right away. Um, so I kind of jumped right into this and and have been really kind of so right now writing some uh, uh, pre shooting scripts. You know, sitting around with script writing programs and dealing with that and 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 a bit nervous about the pressure. One of the big pressures <laughs> of uh, these TV series is you know you have to line up all these people who have to show up and you know then made them you know go for long tv interviews but it's been um that's been good so i've been doing that right now and and i you know i'm certainly going to write more books mm-hmm. but i'm not sure uh what the next book is right now i don't have the uh exact uh, yeah. title uh in the cooker yet it's in your head i know it's in your head when will we see you down here in colombia ah uh, i always love to come down to colombia as a country i i i love very much and, and always Sure, I haven't got a date planned yet, but I'm, I'm sure I'll be back there at some point. All right. Well, look me up when you're down. Listen, thank you so much for your time. It goes without saying, stay safe on all of these jobs that you're doing because we don't need you as another statistic out there. Everyone out there, I've read it and I enjoyed it massively. Blood, gun, money, how America arms gangs and cartels. It takes a different look, you know, at, at the problems from the from the you know the context of the arms trade. And I think that's really fascinating. That's why I liked it. I mean, I read enough books on on drugs, obviously being located here. Toby Muses, Kilo, which was very good this last year, couple of years, and so on. But uh, this was really interesting, and I recommend it to all of you out there. Can I just say, Yoan uh, Grillo, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, you know, I really appreciate you sharing some of your insights and being so, you know, unselfish with your knowledge. Great to be here. Thanks so much for the uh, for the invite. It's a it's a great pleasure. I've been Richard McCall talking to Yoan Grillo. He's in Mexico City. I'm in Bogota. This has been episode 411. Please continue to tune in. We continue to have great interviewees on this uh, podcast. I'll be back next week. Bye bye.